0: Why even bother? Have you ever said that to yourself when you're faced with a pointless task or you feel like your efforts have just been wasted? When Tracy and I first got married, we were still university students and so we lived off Centrelink payments. And every fortnight I had to ring up, that's right, on the phone, not on the internet, ring up on the phone, sit on hold for ages, speak to an operator and say, I did not earn any income for the last two weeks, and they say, thank you, this won't affect your payments. And I did that every fortnight. And I tried to argue with Centrelink saying, why do I have to do this? They said, it's just one of the requirements. And I think to myself, why even bother? A few years earlier than that, uh, a group of us who lived at the La Trobe Uni Residential Colleges decided to put on a film and faith night. We showed Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, we invited lots of people to come along, I prepared a talk, kind of connecting the themes of the movie with the story of the Bible. Uh, We we prayed heaps, and we thought it would be a great night to share the good news about Jesus. One person came. I don't think he really spoke much English, and he left straight afterwards. And I thought to myself afterwards, why even bother? You know, sometimes we put lots of effort into something, and it just seems pointless in the end. And that's a bit like how many of the Jews felt when they heard Paul explain the gospel to them. See, they'd spent generations keeping God's law. They'd endured much suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. But then Paul undermines it all by saying that being Jewish won't save them from God's judgment. Surely they would have asked, why even bother? Paul argues in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 32 that humans in general are under God's wrath, under his judgment because they suppress the truth about God and they worship idols. And so the Jews would have wholeheartedly agreed with that. But then in chapter 2 Paul says that even moral people are condemned because they don't keep their own moral code. And even the the religious Jews are condemned Because having a Jewish identity and privileges is not enough. And so this argument would no doubt raise massive questions for any Jews who are reading this. Didn't God promise that we would be his special people and he would be our God? Didn't God give us circumcision as a sign that we belong to him? Didn't God give us the law so that we might walk the path to righteousness? If none of us can keep the law and be made righteous, then why did we even bother trying? If circumcision doesn't guarantee our salvation, then why did we go through that painful effort for generations? If God won't keep his promises to us, then why even bother? And so this is what Paul addresses now in Romans 3. We're going to see in verses 1 to 8 that it's great to know God's promises. It's a privilege to know God's promises but you still need to have faith. Now verses 1 to 8 are pretty tricky to understand because Paul shoots off a series of hypothetical questions and ideas. And it's not always clear what the underlying objections are. But it seems that Paul's kind of thinking about ideas, arguments that he's heard in his many years of ministering to the Jews. However, his conclusions are pretty clear as we read this passage. And Paul begins his argument by saying that the Jews did not waste their time. They had the advantage of God's words, that is, his commands and his promises. Have a look at verse 1 and 2 of Romans 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. You're back in chapter 2 verse 25. Paul says that circumcision has value if you observe the law. That's in relation to salvation. But Paul's thinking more generally here about its value. He's saying that being Jewish and having circumcision is important because these are signs that you belong to God's special chosen people. And what is the primary advantage or benefit of being Jew? Being a Jew, it's being entrusted with the very words of God some Bible translations here say the oracles of God which I think is more accurate Paul's thinking about the Old Testament scriptures he's thinking of the promises and commands of God he's saying that God has spoken to the nation of Israel and these words have been written down for their benefit no other nation on earth can say that what a privilege They know God's will. They have instructions on how to live well in the world that God has made. They know about God, what He's like, what He does. They know about God's plan for the world and where things are headed. They know that through them, through their nation, all nations will be blessed just as God promised to Abraham. Listen to how Psalm 147 describes this. He has revealed His word to Jacob. His laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. What a blessing, what a privilege to be a Jew. The other nations, they're in the dark. They don't know God. Now, you might notice that Paul says in verse 2, first of all, as if he's going to go on with a list of advantages. But I think he gets so excited, he gets distracted and doesn't actually finish this list and addresses some objections that might come to, to his mind. Uh, but he does actually finish the list later on in chapter 9. You can look at that later, verses 4 and 5, he adds some more advantages. But what we see here, though, is th- this primary advantage, the Jews were entrusted with God's promises and his decrees. But their key failing was that they did not prove worthy of this trust. They were unfaithful with the words entrusted to them, and so Paul goes on to say that God is faithful in judging His faithless people. Yeah, there was a thought among the Jews that God would save all of them because otherwise He wouldn't be keeping His promises. They thought that as long as they had the circ- as long as they had circumcision, went to the temple when needed, that they'd be good enough for God. After all, didn't God make a covenant with the people and their descendants at Mount Sinai? A covenant that he swore to uphold? The thought that God would judge the Jews seemed to undermine God's character. And so we see Paul has two objections in mind that he then answers. The first objection is answered in verse 3 and perhaps went something like this. How can God be faithful if he judges his own people? And the second objection is addressed in verse 5, and maybe goes something like this. How can God hold unrighteous Jews accountable if judging them enhances his own righteousness? So let's look at Paul's responses to these objections, and you'll see them in the outline. Uh, The first one is that their faithfulness does not not nullify God's faithfulness. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God gave laws and promises to the Jews, but they were unfaithful. They were faithless in keeping His commands and they didn't respond to His promises in faith. And so God is being faithful when he judges his unfaithful people. Now, some Jews opposed Paul on this, but they'd forgotten the consequences of not keeping up their side of the covenant. Just listen to the words God spoke to Moses in Exodus 19. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests, And a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now on the one hand, God looked for obedience. But on the other hand, he knew that no one could keep his law perfectly. And so he designed the law to reveal their weakness. To drive them back to him to cry out for his mercy. And then after receiving that mercy, they'd be motivated to try to obey him. They were to go to God in faith and rely on Him, not themselves. Yet many Jews became proud or indifferent to God's law. They did not rely on God. They did not have faith in Him. That's why they proved to be unfaithful. And so God is perfectly justified in judging those faithless Jews. In fact, this magnifies God's faithfulness because He shows that He keeps... His promises to judge. And so the Jews had come to rely on their Jewishness to save them from God's wrath. But Paul is showing clearly that they were mistaken. God is always true. He's always right. Even if every single man and woman on the planet is a liar and rejects God, God would still be true and right. To prove this point, Paul quotes from Psalm 51 verse 4. You might know that psalm. King David wrote that psalm after coming under God's judgment. And he realized that just because he was king, it didn't mean that he could get away with whatever he wanted. And so this drove him to cry out for God's mercy. And when he came faithfully, King David received it. This reveals that God is just. God can judge his people while still remaining faithful to his promises. So even if only a remnant is saved, He is still shown to be true and faithful. Now this is a pretty big idea when it comes to the nation of Israel. And Paul's going to return to this idea in chapters 9 through 11. So we'll explore those ideas more down the track. Now Paul's argument would have raised the next objection about God judging his own people. Now, How can God hold unrighteous Jews accountable if judging them enhances his righteousness? And Paul's response is this. The enhancement of God's righteousness does not excuse their unrighteousness. Check out verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Can you see what that human argument is? God will judge those Jews who did not have faith those Jews who tried to make themselves righteous by their own deeds, but of course they failed. So the human argument says, but if judging an unrighteous Jew shows God to be righteous, then aren't we doing God a favour? How can he judge someone who's actually making him look righteous? That's not fair. And Paul's answer is simple. Look at verse 6. Certainly not. If that were so, How could God judge the world? You see, the Jews already believed that God would judge the world. They knew that he would judge the Gentiles. He would judge the unrighteous people and that would reveal God's righteousness. But now Paul is saying, just because an unrighteous person happens to be a Jew, they won't be spared God's wrath. And so the next two verses are just different ways of putting the same objection. Have a look. Someone might say, "If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner?" Well why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, "Let us do evil that good may result. their condemnation is just. Judging unrighteousness reveals God's righteousness. Judging falsehood reveals God's truthfulness. Now how can God be angry at people who reveal him to be righteous and true? How can God be angry at someone who increases his glory? On the one hand you can kind of see the logic of those objections, can't you? But on the other hand we can see how outrageous this is. It's kind of like a scene from my favourite Batman movie. Can you guess which my favourite Batman movie is? There's so many good ones, but this is the best one. Well, There we go. The Lego Batman movie. There's a great scene where Joker refers to himself as Batman's greatest enemy. And he says that they have a special relationship. But Batman throws it back in his face and says the Joker means nothing to him. He doesn't need Joker. He doesn't need anyone. That's the sort of dark and brooding response you'd expect from the Dark Knight, even in Lego form. And Joker's heart is broken. Now, you know, Joker's logic is kind of like the logic Paul is challenging. See, what's Joker getting at? He's, he's saying that without his law-breaking and mayhem, Batman would not be able to reveal himself to be a hero. And perhaps Batman could agree with that. Now, he could admit that Joker's evil enhances Batman's goodness. But imagine if Joker then said to Batman, since I make you look good, it would be wrong for you to capture me. After all, I'm doing you a favor. You need me. And what would Batman say to that? Now just picture I'm saying this. Imagine I'm saying this in a really cool Batman voice, right? You're going down, Joker. I'm not going to even try. Now what do you think God would say to the Jew who argues like this? God, you can't condemn me as a sinner because my falsehood enhances your truthfulness. I'm doing you a favor. You need me. What would God say to that? You're going down, sinner. You know, it's outrageous to suggest that God should not judge you. It's outrageous to question the integrity and justice of God. It's outrageous to make the claim that some people thought Paul was making. Let us do evil, the good may result. Anyone who thinks like that deserves condemnation. Because in the end, it's just playing with words, isn't it? And it's trying to avoid God's just judgment. So that's pretty much Romans 3, 1-8 in a nutshell. But what does it mean for us today? Well, we have to remember that it was written to the Jews as members of God's old covenant people. God had a plan for this nation that he worked out over many centuries. And there are lots of reasons that they had the law. They had to exist as a nation so Jesus could be born and do his work of salvation. So being Jewish wasn't a waste of time. God had a plan. God had a purpose. But they thought the Jewishness itself was the path to salvation. They thought obedience to the law was the path to salvation. They couldn't see that the law always pointed to salvation by faith. This was revealed in the coming of Jesus. But many of them couldn't see that. And so in one sense, their situation is unique in all of history because they played a special role in salvation history. So in one sense, this passage is not directly relevant to us. But in another sense, there is a a sort of parallel here. A parallel for the people of God today. We live under the new covenant established by Jesus, and the people of God are found in the church. And so we could ask this question. What advantage is there in being part of the church? What advantage is there to being in the Christian community? Or to put it another way, How is God faithful to his church? Well, The first way he's faithful is that he entrusts us with the very words of God. One of the great privileges of being part of a church is having access to the Bible and hearing the Bible taught. In John 6, we read a story where a number of people turned away from Jesus after a particularly difficult teaching session. And he turns to his 12 disciples and says this, You do not want to leave me too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where do we go today to read the eternal words of Jesus? The words about eternal life. We go to the Bible. In the pages of the Bible, we learn the way to receive eternal life. Paul has established so far in his letter to the Romans that, All people need to be rescued from God's wrath. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to finally see the details of how Jesus saves us. But let me summarise for today. Jesus saves us by swapping places with us. When he died on the cross, he put himself under God's wrath so that we might be spared. Also, he did live the perfect life of obedience that God requires. And he earned righteousness. And he gives that righteousness to us. We simply repent and believe. We turn and trust. That's how we are saved. By faith and by faith alone. This is what the Bible teaches. It's even what the Old Testament teaches and what the Jews fail to see. But it's why we value the Old Testament as part of the word of God. We are blessed to have those oracles that were entrusted to the Jews and now they are entrusted to us. And the Bible reveals God to us. We are taught who He is, what He does. We don't have to wonder and speculate. The Bible teaches us what it means to be human and how to live well in the world. What an absolute privilege and blessing to have the very words of God so that we can know the truth. So we can know God's promises, that He will bless His people That he will judge the world and make it new and right all wrongs. He will forgive us of our daily sins. And he will never leave nor forsake us. Wonderful promises. The church has the benefit of God's word. And even those who aren't Christians can come along to a church service and hear the very words of God. And this is why the Bible has such a central role in what we do on a Sunday. But simply turning up to church in hearing the word of God, is not enough to save you. So we need to reflect now on the second way that God is faithful to his church. It's how he judges those who lack faith in Jesus. Now just like with the Jews, not all who belong to the church actually have faith. Perhaps they trust in their Christianity and not in Christ. On the day of judgment, they will try to present their Christian activities to God, their good deeds to God and they'll be condemned. They could have trusted in Jesus, but instead they trusted in themselves, and they failed to meet that standard. And this might be a shocking truth for some people to hear. Some people might protest against this and try to argue their case to God. They'll say, God, don't you know that I was baptised? Don't you know that I went to church every Sunday? Don't you know that I gave stacks of money to church? Don't you know that I served on six ministry teams at the same time? Not a if none of this counts, then why even bother? If you can't offer these things to God, then why bother doing them? But they'll end up sounding like the Jews, won't they? Who revealed their futile thinking by resisting Paul's teaching. They'll reveal themselves to have only paid lip service to Jesus while lacking that inner change that comes about by faith and by the work of the Spirit. Now I'm not going to go into detail about this because Aaron explained all this last week, didn't he? All that needs to be said is that God can be faithful to his church by judging those in the church who lack faith and have not been changed by the Spirit on the inside. So let's explore one last idea now. We might find ourselves in the place of the Jews who asked the question, why even bother? If doing Christian stuff doesn't save you, then why bother? If trying to lead a godly life doesn't save you, then why bother? And I think this is particularly relevant for people who've grown up in the church. Yeah, perhaps these are questions that you're wrestling with at the moment. You're trying to decide, do I want to be a Christian or not? Perhaps you're a parent who's trying to raise your children in the teaching instruction of the Lord. Or perhaps you just know people who are struggling with these things. You're not sure what to say to them. Let's explore now one of the greatest truths you'll ever hear. It's good to grow up in the church. Now put your hand up if you didn't grow up as a Christian but became one later. That includes me. There's a few of you. Now keep your hands up. Keep your hand up if you'd wish you'd become a Christian sooner. You see, one of the greatest regrets that many adult Christians have is that they were converted later in life after living a life of rebellion against God. Perhaps it was a life of indulgence and foolish decisions that led to harm. Perhaps it was a life of proud legalism accompanied by crushing guilt. I became a Christian at 19, yet I still still had years of unhealthy habits and attitudes that I had to undo by the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish I could have been spared some of the sinful choices that I made growing up. Now, growing up in church is no guarantee that you'll be saved. Let's be clear on that. Growing up in the church is no guarantee that you'll be spared temptations and foolish decisions. But it is still better. You know, there are plenty of people who will tell us that it's a bad thing to grow up in the church. So let me share with you three common myths and how we might respond with the truth. The first myth is that growing up in the church, you get brainwashed. You know, people will tell you that you don't get taught to think for yourself. You're just fed lies. It's better off to explore everything first and then decide later. But what is the advantage of being in the church? You're entrusted with the very words of God. You get to hear the truth about God and salvation. You have to go out there and find it. It's in the Bible. You know where to go for the words of eternal life. You know where to go for answers. You know where to go for help and guidance. You get it from God's word and God's people. You can make sense of the world. And when it comes to the idea of brainwashing, let's be honest... Every parent, every teacher, every celebrity is trying to convince people of their own views. We want people to agree with us, whether we're aware of it or not. No one is neutral. And so in the church, at least we're honest about what we're doing. We're trying to share what we think is the truth. But we invite you to have a conversation. We want to show you from how we get it from the Bible. We're not forcing it down anybody's throats. The second myth is that growing up in the church is bad because you miss out on the fun of life. People tell you that there's a world of fun out there and the church just wants to rob you of joy. But the truth is, growing up in the church, you're more likely to be spared the pain of disobedience. Sin is deceitful. It promises much and delivers little. Most people find this out the hard way. But growing up in the church, you have an advantage. You have the word of God. You have the example of godly Christians, both of which warn you from giving in to the temptations of this world. Now you'll still fall and still stumble. You'll sin because no one is perfect. But growing up in the church, it's likely that you won't fall as hard or as deep as others. Now people might even say that you you should experiment a little. You know, just taste what the world has to offer before you become a Christian. You know, become a Christian later on in life, you settle down. And there's lots of ways we could say that's a bad idea, but let me share one thought. To do that is an act of hardening your heart against God, saying no to God. What makes you think you'll be able to come back when you start to walk that path? Why even bother starting? The third and final myth about why growing up in the church is bad, is that you glorify God more if you wander first. So even Christians can give this impression, perhaps unintentionally, they give the impression that a more dramatic conversion story glorifies God more. You know, we love to hear about the person who had a terrible, horrible life, a wicked person, and they became a Christian, and we love to hear their testimony, and we'll parade them around the church as the wonderful example of God's grace. And this is similar to what Paul addresses here in Romans 3. It's like the slogan: let us do evil, that good may result. Let us be horrible people first, then we can become Christians, because good will result. We can be tempted to think that God's righteousness is more greatly demonstrated when we first live a more unrighteous life. But the truth is: there is no such thing as a boring testimony. Salvation is salvation. We are all sinners in need of grace. It's not the amount of grace that you receive. It's not the number of sins that had to be covered over for you to be forgiven that glorifies God. It's the fact that he shows any grace at all. That's the miracle. In reality, you should long for a straightforward testimony. What a blessing to be able to say, I've always known that God loves me and that Jesus died for me. I didn't need to plunge myself into a life of disobedience to learn that. In fact, God has spared me much grief by protecting me all my life. Wouldn't that be a great testimony? That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for everyone here. What a testament to God's grace that he can work in someone's heart all of their life. What a blessing to be spared the scars of bad choices. What a blessing to not have years of bad habits to undo. What a blessing to not have a pile of regrets to work through with God. What a blessing to grow up in the church. Now don't get me wrong. If you have wandered and struggled, then know that God's grace is sufficient for you. It's not a competition. He will work in your life. He loves you. He heals you. He will guide you. But here's the thing, we don't want to wish that on someone else, do we? We know that God works in us. But we don't want others to have to go through what we've endured. May we pray that the children of our church will never have to endure what we have endured. So let me finish by reminding you that these benefits of knowing God, being guided by Him, they're here for all who grow up in the church. They are here for all who attend regularly, who participate in the life of our church. But to receive the benefit of salvation, you must have faith. You still need to trust in Jesus. Don't think that simply being in the church is enough. It's great to know God's promises, but you still need to have faith. Turn to Jesus and trust in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the wonderful promises you make in it. Please help us to trust in him and rest in him. and Most of all, help us to trust in your promise that you will forgive anyone who trusts in Jesus' death and resurrection. We also pray you will help us to see and celebrate the benefit of growing up in the church. We pray in particular for all our children that they would know the blessing of always trusting in Jesus and being assured that they are saved and loved by you. Amen.